You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Morning, Real Life family. So glad to have you with us this morning. And uh, we are in week two of the Sermon on the Mount. Just so that you don't miss this, we just finished a series called Taking Your Mountain. And now we're talking through the Sermon on the Mount. So we talked about the mountains that move culture, and now we're talking about the message that you should be speaking while you're there. And last week, um, they, Marty and Amy did a great job of really pulling apart the Beatitudes. I thought it was really good in, in that. Um, that was a weak applause. Like, <laughs> clap or don't. Let's just get goes. Uh, Get the squish just like grape when you do it halfway. That's what Mr. Miyagi says. Anyways, uh, that, that probably is becoming too old of a illustration. For those of you that are under the age of 16, there was this movie called Karate Kid before Will Smith's kid was in it, and it was actually a good one. Um, and I feel like there's certain things that you shouldn't mess with, and Karate Kid was one of those. Uh, but they did it. Anyway, uh, that has nothing to do with the sermon, and we just wasted a minute and a half. All right. <clears throat> so, uh, they did a great job with this. We all hit seasons in our life for whatever reason where we just feel like we don't see God. Like, where are you, God? And, and God is not there. It's dark. And what the Beatitudes tell us is that in these moments where we feel like God isn't there, the kingdom of God is actually uniquely present there. And so then what we have to do is understanding that we have to move into this next section, salt and light, which is a really, I think, under understood and overutilized passage, especially between its two connecting points, which is the Beatitudes and then Jesus saying, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. Like, how do we fit all that stuff in there? So what is salt and light? And so we're going to look at this passage. It's really only going to be four verses today, but there's three really important metaphors that I think are significant for us. And so I want to read the passage. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to circle the phrase good works. What, how do you show people that you are salt and light in the world? Good works. Now for those, it's not about what you know. It's not about what you've been taught. It's not about what you believe about what. It's your good works that show that you are salt and light in the world. Essentially what Jesus is saying here is put up or shut up. Right? Are you with me? What also needs to be made out in this passage at this point is when people see your good works, what happens? They glorify your Father who's in heaven. That's the goal. That people will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And that's important because if when people see your good works, they glorify you, then maybe our motives are off. 
Because the goal isn't to bring glory to me. Now, Jesus is going to unpack this a lot in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Don't let your, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, right? When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. He's going to go on and on and on about all that stuff. But what he's saying is, when you do your good works so that you're showing the world that you are salt and light, what it does is it brings glory to your Father in heaven. That's the objective. Okay? Now, there's three major metaphors in this passage that are all kind of significant. And so I want to look at them. Number one is salt. And number two is light. And number three is a city on a hill. So I want to pull these metaphors apart. Like, why is Jesus doing this? And, and, and we'll kind of try to set it back into its context. Here, here's something that's always really important for us to, re to remember. Um, we cannot know what it means for us until we know what it meant to them. Once we know what it meant to them, then we can start to apply that to our lives. Make sense? But we can't just make it mean whatever we want it to mean for today. We have to know what it meant for them so that we can understand what it means for us. And so I want to look at these three metaphors from a first century perspective. Okay? So let's look at the idea of salt. I want to, I want to pull, show you some pictures. This, let's look at picture number one. This is salt from the Dead Sea. Uh, if you've been to the Dead Sea with me, you know, if, you're, if you've been to Israel, because it's a rule that you got to go to the Dead Sea, you got to swim in the Dead Sea when you go to Israel. Like when you go there, um, this, this, the Dead Sea is an amazing place. So the ocean is between six and eight percent salt, and that's salt water. The Dead Sea, 36 and a half percent salt. Like it is salty and, and it's so salty that like there's not really any life there. Um, and what's interesting is if you walk out into the Dead Sea and a lot of people aren't prepared for this, you cannot sink in it, which you go right, right, right. So when you go out, you'll let, here's the problem. You get out so deep and your feet actually come off the ground. And what happens for a lot of people is they fall forward. Like the, the salt water literally takes their feet out from underneath them and, the, and, and you're so buoyant that you can't get under the water. Like people can't write, like people almost drown this way. I'll show you, come with me to Israel. I'll show you the proper technique to sit down and <laughs> it's, it's the proper technique. I'll show it to you. Here's the thing about like you, it's crazy. You can't sink in it because there's so much salt. It's, it, you can't. And, and like the other thing about the Dead Sea, it's so kind. The Dead Sea is so kind. Like if you have like a razor burn or like a hangnail <laughs> or if you do a trip like ours and you're hiking out in the desert and your legs are all scratched up because you've been wearing shorts and running through thorns hypothetically if some crazy tour leader would ask you to do such a thing. The Dead Sea is so kind, it will let you know if you didn't know that you had that. It's, it's so kind to you that way. It's pretty crazy, pretty crazy. There's a running joke in the Middle East today that leave it to the God of the Jews to take them to the one part of the Middle East that doesn't have any oil. Like, there's no oil in, in Israel. There's no gold in Israel. There's none. I asked my guide, because I, I like to gold pan, like it's a hobby for me. And so I was like, hey, I asked my guide, I said, hey, is there any gold in Israel? Like, I want to come, I want to pan gold on the Sea of Galilee. That would be awesome. No, there's none. There's no gold. There's, there's some copper mines down in the southern end of Israel, but there's really not, like, there's not really anything valuable from a mineral sense there, um, except for salt. Here's the interesting thing about salt 
in the ancient world. Salt was incredibly valuable in that time period. In fact, it was so valuable that they paid people in salt. Like as, as, as money, the, they, they paid people, it was called a salarium. We get our word salary from that. They, they paid people in salt, so the, the term you're not worth your salt, it comes from that. Like salt was super valuable. Now we, in today's world, salt is cheap, right? Like here's the interesting thing. Like you could pay like a buck and a half for a, five gallons of salt. Like you throw it on your ice, right? Like salt's not valuable to us, but to them... Salt was a big deal. Now, there's multiple veins of salt at the Dead Sea. One vein in particular, just one of them that they're currently mining, has enough salt in it to, to supply the entire world's population with salt for the next 60 years. Like, there's that much salt there. So the idea of salt to the Jew is a very familiar concept. They understand it, and they understand that when Jesus is talking about salt, he's not talking about it the way we talk about it. Like, we talk about he's just a salt of the earth kind of person, or she's, she's a salt of the earth gal. When we say that, we're saying something like they're, they're like trustworthy and good, like blue collar, hardworking, you know, they're, they're a good person, word is their bond, you know, that kind of thing. For them... This would have been like for you and I saying, you're the diamonds of the world. Like, pick the most valuable substance you can think of. You're the platinum of the world. Like for them, and I've heard lots of sermons about salt. It makes people thirsty and it seasons food and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, and, and like, here's the thing. Reality is salt was so valuable, like the common person in Israel never would have used salt to season their food. No way. It was way too valuable. Um, but they did use it because um, there, was no, there was no trees there. They used it to mix with um, cow manure for fuel. It actually helped it burn longer. And I, and I, uh, I heard a sermon once about you're the salt of the earth, which means you need to go be mixed with the manure of the world and make it stronger. And I was like, that's a stretch, but cool. All right. So I want to show you, I want to show you uh, uh, some, another picture. So this is the Dead Sea on the right-hand side. And if you come down the highway, you come down to the right-hand corner, you see a yellow dot there that says bridge. See that? If you take a left, left and go this way up the canyon there. That's a wadi. And that wadi is called Wadi Zohar. And what happened was salt, even back in the ancient world, was taken from the Dead Sea and it was um, packed up this wadi up to the top. So let me show you another picture, another map. This dotted line with the red square on it that goes from the Dead Sea up to Arad. Come with me. We'll hike it. Not all of it, but we'll hike it. It's about a 16-mile hike, and it raises about 2,200 vertical feet. So it's a climb. It's a climb. So we won't, we won't do that, but uh, we'll go down. We'll hike down it. And we'll only hike a part of it. Like, I'm really easy on you guys. Just come with me. Um, it'll only be about 120, 125 uh, Fahrenheit down there. It's not a big deal. It'd be awesome. Uh, anyway, so they hike up out of the Dead Sea. They take this. This is called the Salt Highway. 
in the ancient world. It's called the Salt Highway. And they hike it out up to a rod. And then at a rod, it gets put on camels. It gets taken to the Mediterranean, put on boats, and the salt gets shipped all over the world. This is something that is very familiar to the Israelis. Let me show you one more picture. This is what it looks like today. It's actually exactly what it looked like then. Like it looked like the moon. I, I don't know. How many, how many trees do you see there? By the way, those bushes down there are bushes. They're not trees. Like there's not a lot to... It's a different world than what we're used to. Um, it's a different world than what we're used to. But you hike up this. We will actually hike this exact stretch of Wadi Zohar. Uh, but we'll hike it down. So this is what it looks like today. This, this incredibly valuable substance gets mined out, hiked up this road to a rod, and then shipped all over the world. Okay? Now here's what's interesting. What Jesus says about salt is, the thing about salt is that it can only be salt. If it loses its saltiness, it's not worth anything. Like, salt can only be salt. It can't be... And salt's a bit like, in the, in the mineral world, when there's a party, and salt walks in the room, like, you have carbon over here, it's hanging out with... I don't know, some other mineral. <laughs> I'm obviously a geologist. Salt walks in the room. Carbon looks at barium, whatever, and goes, uh, I don't know if you know this, but sodium chloride just walked in. <sighs> this party just went up. It just got lit. That's what my kids say. This party just got lit. <laughs> That's like, salt's a big deal, right? And what he says is, salt doesn't get to be carbon. It can't, it, it does, it, salt is salt. That's all it is. Here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, diamonds of the world. This is how God sees you. And I know that there's seasons in your life where you feel like God's not even there. But I want you to know that the kingdom of God is uniquely there. Why? Because you are so valuable. And the thing that you have to understand about being salt is you can only be salt. Like you're, you are only awesome. That's all you can be. But in order to live that way, what we have to understand is that we have to live in our worthiness and the truth of what God says about us and not the lies that the world tells us. There's lots of places in the world that will try to make you feel like you're less. You get a, get a group of guys together, right? And they just start chipping at each other. It's what guys do. I, I never understood it, really, and I don't like it. But guys get together, and they're like, oh, you're, you're dumb. Oh, you're, you know, you're fat. Well, so what? You're ugly, and I can diet. Like, that's kind of how guys... Uh, that's how guys talk to each other all the time. Right? I never, like, what if, what if it was about, I'm not trying to make you feel like you're inadequate in any way. I want to show you how awesome you are. What if that was the conversation? Guys wouldn't know what to do with it. Where they're like, you're fat. Man, you are amazing. <laughs> um, I just want you to know how awesome, and I'm so thankful, really, truly from the bottom of my heart, so thankful that I get to even hang out with you. Like, I just want you to know how awesome I think you are. The guy would be like, uh, like, 
my head explode. Like, I, you don't even know what to do with that, right? Like, because we live in a world that is built around tearing us down, right? Like, that's not what salt does. Salt lives in the truth of who we are. Salt lives in our worthiness. Salt understands that when Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, he couldn't pick a more valuable substance to describe the Jews with or his listeners with. You can't be, you're like, there's not a more valuable substance for them. You're the salt of the earth. Yeah, we are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, so what? Right? Like, what difference does that make? So, yay, so I'm awesome. Uh, I'm part of the Lego movie now, right? Like, everything is awesome. Like, that's yay for me. So what? Well, here's the other thing. You're the light of the world. And that's important because being light matters. Now, I want to give you an important Bible study lesson if you want to understand things in their context. There's rules for how you interpret the Bible. There's rules. You don't get to interpret it any way you want to. You don't get to just read it and, oh, the Holy Spirit spoke this to me, so it must be true. There's rules to how you interpret the Bible. Those rules are called hermeneutics. Okay? They're rules. Hermeneutics. There's a Jewish hermeneutic hermeneutic called the principle of first mention. What that means is, if you want to understand why a word is being used in a passage or a story or being used as a metaphor, what you have to do is go back to the first place that that idea is mentioned in the Bible, and how it's used there is going to influence and color every other usage of it all the way through the Bible. That's called the principle of first mention, right? So when Jesus says light, there is a whole big rabbinic discussion going on around the idea of light, okay? Where's the first place in the Bible that light gets mentioned? Creation, right? So the rabbinic thought was, in the beginning, God separated light from darkness, And this is now our job. Our job is to separate light from darkness in the world, to be able to distinguish what is sacred and what is common. Now, here's the problem. For a lot of us in the church, what we've done is we've taken this kind of thinking to mean that we're supposed to tell darkness that it's dark. We're supposed to point out every place where the darkness is dark not based on what's just happened with the Beatitudes. What Jesus has been saying is all these places that you think are darkness, they actually aren't. Like the kingdom of God is there. And your job, diamonds of the world, is to call the light out. Celebrate the light wherever it is, regardless of where you see it, but especially in dark places. Don't tell the dark it's dark. Call out the light. That's a totally different approach to how Christians are to live in the world. Does that make sense? It's so important that we get this right because when we don't, the church gets defined by all kinds of things. And there's lots of different ways to describe the church, but there's some words that should never be used to describe the church, like closed-minded and bigoted and controlling and manipulative and coercive. 
These are not words that should ever be used to describe the church. Here's what's interesting. We live as light, which raises an interesting question. Why do you follow the rules that God gave you? And more importantly, why did God give us the rules in the first place? Like, he's God. He could pick whatever rules he wanted, right? So why did he give them to us? Why are they there for us, okay? Well, think about it for a second. Why do you uh, not lie? Well, you don't lie because God is truth. Why do you not murder? Because God is life. Why do you not commit adultery? Because God is love. Do you see how this works? Like, the idea of the rules that God gave us, it's there because the rules that we live by reveal God's nature. So by following God's rules, we put God on display to the world. We're revealing to, we're taking light to dark places. You with me? That's why we have the rules we have. But more than that, our job then is, as we are living as light in the world, that we go out into dark places and we call the light out of other people. When that person does that thing that was super kind, call it out. Yeah, but they're not a believer. Yeah, but it was still kind and it still is the light working. Like, light doesn't magically become light when the Holy Spirit moves in. Light is light because it's light. Call out the goodness of the world. Invite them into a relationship with the Lord. But don't do it by going, I'm right because I have the Holy Spirit and therefore you're darkness. And so, there. Hope you want to be my friend now. <laughs> Did you know that you're an abomination? <laughs> like, like, if that's your good news, I don't want to hear your bad news, right? Like, call out that act of generosity. Call out that thing that was good, whatever it was. Call it out where you see it, because when you do, you're inviting light into dark places. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a point where you don't have a conversation about Jesus. Yes, 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 yes. But my relationship with you shouldn't begin with, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? It should begin with, you have something that's worth investing in. You have good in you. And Jesus sets it free. That's what salt does. Because salt is awesome. The thing about living in your awesome, I tell you a funny story. I don't have time for this, but it's awesome. I have some dear friends. I have some dear friends who have a five-year-old daughter. And the mom asked their five-year-old daughter, she said, hey, what do you think God loves most about you? And her five-year-old answer was, my fabulous. (laughs) (sighs) Yep. (laughs) That is awesome. Salt, you salt in your fabulous. You are fabulous. Fabulous. You, like, you're secure enough in your fabulous that you don't have to worry about bringing other people down so that you can feel big. See, what salt does is recognizes its worth and invites everyone up to it. 
Salt doesn't make other people small so that it can feel bigger. It's not what happens. You are the light of the world. And when you live that way, you will stick out. But for good things. Wouldn't it be cool to be a part of a church that stuck out in the community only for good things? Like, wouldn't that be awesome? (laughs) Instead of for like, they hate people. Like they, if you don't agree with them, there's no place for you. Like that's not, I don't think that's salt. I don't think that's the kind of community that Jesus had. When we talk about community, what's so funny is there's so many weird positions on community. When we talk about community, like don't ever forget that Jesus in his community had his betrayer. Like it was a part of his, like Jesus isn't about blind compliance in his community. That's not what he's shooting for. But we got to figure out how to do this together because left to our own devices, we have our own skewed perspective, our own emotional damage that we're working through and we're trying to live out this thing well. As a community, we start to help people understand a much more rounded picture of who God is. I had a good friend of mine, Rex Latah, who said something to me that I've always held on to. He said this, when I disciple people by myself, they start to look a lot more like me. When I disciple people in community, they start to look a lot more like Jesus. Like, that's really important. Because I don't want you to look like me. <laughs> you don't want you to look like me. You want to look, but I do want you to look like Jesus. I want you to look like Jesus. Um, so when you do this, you're going to stick out. And when you stick out, you're going to stick out like a city on a hill. Let me show you. A rabbi is never going to say something without having something to point at. There's two really good candidates for what he was talking about. But I want to show you some pictures. Jesus is in the Galilee. And this, so he's in Capernaum, uh, just outside of Capernaum, up on a hill. Come with me to Israel. We'll go, we'll stand right where this conversation happened. This city is the city of Tiberias. So if you look at the Sea of Galilee, like the top kind of in the western corner, Capernaum's here, Tiberius is here. Like they're really close together. And, and it's very, that's a very good candidate for what Jesus is talking about. Next slide. This city up on a hill is directly behind them. So this would be what the disciples are looking at as Jesus is speaking. This is Safat. Safat is the world headquarters for Kabbalah. That's there. It was there in the first century up on the hill. So that could be a great candidate for a city on a hill. Let's look at the next one. This is a really hard one to see. But if you look at this, this is, I think this is on the Decapolean side of the Sea of Galilee. And, and yes, you would have been able to see this very easily from where they're at. You have these clumps of lights along the top. There's like five different clumps of lights along the ridge line there. That are, those are all cities. Those are all cities. <laughs> And so what Jesus is saying is, look, when you, when you live as salt and you live as light, you're going to stick out. But that's okay, because you're going to stick out for good things. Man, I want to be a part of a, a church, a community of people who are willing to stick out in the community for good things. And uh, it's with that in mind that we're going to move towards the Lord's table. And so if you're new with us, we have an open table. What that means is you're welcome to take communion with us if you're willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us. But we want you to hold those elements to the end, and we'll take them all together. And while they're, 
passing that out, I want to work through a few implications. Implication number one, we are infinitely valuable. In fact, say this after me. We are infinitely valuable. Say with me one more time. We are infinitely valuable. I have a Bible study assignment for you. Being moved by the Spirit here. This isn't in the notes. This week, I want you to go home and look up all the passages that talk about man being bad. There are some in the Bible. And I want you to pay attention to who's speaking when that's being stated. Because here's my theory. When God talks about man, he says things like, you're his masterpiece. You're amazing. You're precious. When man speaks about man, there's all this stuff about being corrupted and messed up. And, but that's not what God sees. We are infinitely valuable. And we will experience the true freedom and peace in our lives when we live in our value not in the lies that the world has told us. Freedom in your life, peace, wholeness, happens when we start to understand and live into the truth of what God says we are, not the lies of, that the world tries to tell us. Second implication. As followers of Jesus, we are called to bring light into dark places. Calling out the true identity of others from God's perspective is how we do that. It's how we do it. Uh, and I got it, like, if you go all the way back to the, the sermon that we did uh, several weeks ago about the family mountain, th that was such a uh, profound sermon for me, and it, and it reinforced something that I've been trying on, and it's one of those things where, um, I, for all of you that were oldest children, on your parents' behalf, I'm sorry. Because like my dad always says, we're too soon old and too late smart. Like, this is something that just, really changed for me and it's actually having benefits for my youngest two kids more than for my oldest two kids. Um, calling out the identity of a person, like the truth of who they are, that is really the role of healthy relationship and especially when you think about parent-child, husband-wife, those kinds of things. Like we gotta call out, not the mistakes, don't point out the mistakes, Point out their identity. I'll give you an example of how this works. This is a simple one, and uh, it worked out really well, so uh, I'll just throw it at you and won't tell you about all the times where I've blown it. So I have a 12-year-old daughter, Ellie, who's amazing. She's just a gift to our family. Every day I wake up and smile because I know I get to hug her. And uh, her, one of her chores is that she has to do the dishes, the dishwasher. She has to load the dishwasher. Um, and my, my Ellie is one of the most responsible human beings in the whole world. Like, she is. And that's, you give, she's the one, in our whole family, she's the one kid that's like, hey, you need to get this done. I don't have to think about it again. I know she's going to do it. My other kids are like, to, for the 12th time, you know, you, you got to clean your room. All right. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I forgot. 
You never told me that. You know, I forgot. I'll do it as soon as I get home from my friends. Yeah, yeah, you won't. You know, that, you, you've had this conversation, right, with your kids. I don't have to do that with Ellie. You tell her one time, she does it. Well, what happened was she was starting to struggle with, like, doing the dishes. Then it'd start to build up, and we'd have to tell her. You know, it's not like her. Just, she's not her. She's super responsible. She always has been. Here's the cool thing about identity. Because we had been taking the time to point out this piece of her that's good, I was able to sit down with her and go, Ellie, you're so responsible. She was like, yeah. Because <laughs> that's how she rolls. Yeah, I am, Dad. I said, so, you know, what I've been noticing is you've been struggling with getting the dishes done. She was like, yeah. And I said, okay, so question, how does that square with you being so responsible? Like, how do those two things line up? She goes, they don't. I said, well, what's going on? She goes, I don't know, I'm getting distracted, and I mean, lots of things going on at school, whatever. I said, well, but you're responsible. Like, that's who you are. What do you think we should do about that? She goes, I need to do the dishes. Okay. Conversation over. <laughs> now, even two years ago, I would have been like, you're grounded to your room because you can't handle the privilege of freedom. And so until you can, right? Like, because I wanted to punish bad behavior rather than call out the good truth in her. Does that make sense? Like, that's how I was raised. And, and my parents didn't do that. Like, they did the best they could. I turned out all right. Uh, <laughs> like, but they're, like, they didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. Like, I was, if you do something wrong, you get punished for it. So what you want to do is do the right thing so that you don't get punished for it. But the reality is we want to do the right thing because it's who we are. Because it's who God is. Not because if I don't, I'll get punished. Like, it's bigger than that. It's a deeper conversation. Living as light calls out the identity and celebrates it in other people. We find light in the dark places. Third implication, we should stick out, but for good reasons, not for bad ones. And I, I, I'm on a mission with that one. We should stick out in the community. We should, in our town, Moscow, and the Palouse. We should stick out, but we should stick out for good reasons. Like, man, I went there and they loved me. Holy cow. Those people were nice. They said nice things to me. I don't know, try it on. It might be awesome. <laughs> See what happens. I want to be a part of that kind of church. And so with, with that implication, we have one more, but it's really just a question. And this is a question that I want to just ask when you're in your home group this week or when you're around your dinner table with your family or whatever, when you're with your people that you talk about God with. It's just a question to be asking like, how are we separating light and darkness in our own lives? How are we doing it? Are we pointing out where the dark is dark? Or are we calling the light out of dark places? In our own life, and like personally, internally, how am I separating light from darkness in my family? How am I separating light from darkness? And that doesn't mean that that's going to be pleasant and it's all going to work out well. Sometimes it means... Being light in a dark place means that you're going to have to take a stand and that stand is going to cost you. Sometimes that does mean that.
How are you doing this at work with your friends? How, how are you separating light from darkness in our lives? It's a good question to wrestle with, and I love communion because this invitation of Jesus to be light and to be salt is rooted in this one unrelenting truth that we can only fully realize that when we lay down our own agenda, when we lay down our own life, and we take up the mission of God to live it fully. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. the same way after the dinner he took a cup and he said this cup is a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you so whenever you drink this cup do it in remembrance of me let's pray God I want to say thank you for the unrelenting determination to call out the good in us that you seem to have from Genesis all the way through Revelation God I know that we face a lot of just opposition to that from even from places that we should be able to trust. Lord, thank you for the blessed assurance that we're yours and that we can rest in that and that because of the healing and wholeness that comes from a life devoted to you that we can call the light out of dark places. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.